everybody. Welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week is a big one for me as well. We are talking to the multi-talented producer, engineer, mixer, what have you, Dave Bascom. Now, if you were like me and you grew up in the 80s listening to a lot of British alternative music, you saw his name on virtually everything that you were listening to. It just became one of those names where it's like, wow, there's that guy again. So I wanted to talk to him about some of the great music that he's had his hands on. This conversation covers so many things. I, I even had to write it down. Here we go. There's Genesis's Duke album. There's Level 42. There's some Echo and the Bunny Men. There's a lot of Tears for Fears. He engineered the songs from the Big Chair album and worked on Seeds of Love. He co-produced Depeche Mode's uh, Music for the Masses. He worked on Peter Gabriel's So. That's why you're hearing Red Rain here, one of the greatest songs ever. If you, I mean, obviously, right? There's Redbox. We had Redbox on here. Love them. The Circle in the Square. Danny Wilson. James. There's Erasure. He worked on their Chorus album. Great album. The Silencers. The Lightning Seeds. Bon Jovi. Lady Antebellum. The Verve, Chromeo, Alpine Stars, and Goldfrap all make appearances in this episode. Now, it can be difficult sometimes. Like, we had this issue when we had Steve Thompson on here a couple of years ago. Guys who have done as many different things as Dave and Steve have, sometimes it's hard to know. Like, did they produce this? Did they engineer that? Did they mix the whole album or just the song or just the one song but not the song you that was the hit or did they just do the hit or did they just do the remix it gets kind of complicated but i think you'll agree so much fantastic music passes through this conversation just to think that he had his hands on all of this stuff is amazing i hope you enjoy this conversation he is a legend in my mind now that i'm saying this i forgot to ask where he was calling me from maybe he says it in here i don't remember but it was england whatever it was probably right outside of london For starters, I got to say, you've done so much, but I was trying to find, you don't really have a website. I've never done that. And people have said I must be crazy, but no, I just kind of got, a, I just put um, a link to my manager's website because she kind of says everything I want to say, really. Okay. I was going to do it and I sort of had, a, I've had a few templates made up and then I just kind of thought, oh, but didn't see the point really. <laughs> okay. I just was thinking in terms of one organized place where your whole resume exists, you know yeah. what I mean? Well, it's something so I should probably do. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Now, now you mentioned, now you put it like that. I think you might be right. You might be right. <laughs> I suppose also it kind of feels like a, it feels like a bit of a kind of ego thing well, for me. It's a bit. I, I hear you. I know that's crazy, but um, not everyone deserves that. You deserve that. I'll just tell you. So, okay. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. It's funny. I did. I did have a Wikipedia page at one point, and uh, yeah. someone took it down. That's not even there. 
<laughs> but I don't know who put that up. So I don't know who did it in the first place. And then some moderator took it down. But there is one in France. I've got a French Wikipedia page in French. I found that one. But I don't read French, so it was no use to me, you know? <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> Anyway, I think yeah. it says I was born in France, which I wasn't. Anyway, there yeah, you go. I saw that too. Okay, well, yeah. Anyway, so I, I've done the best sleuthing I can to cobble <laughs> together, you know. Well, I'm sorry I didn't make it any easier for you by putting it all in one place. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. But look, I mean, I don't always go back to the very beginning, but, you know, I, from what I understand, I think in the early 80s, maybe in the late 70s, you sort of got a job as sort of a you know a gopher or a tea guy or whatever in a studio right that's exactly right i mean i was kind of well i was in a band and no intention of working in the studio i didn't really have any ambitions like that um although i had did have a little reel-to-reel tape recorder that i got given uh for passing some exam and i was always the one who recorded the band you know and i was always uh-huh. kind of you know home taping before cassettes really took off so um it kind of when i did get to get through the studio it was kind of felt second nature in a way but um well literally there's a, there's a guy in the band who's seen this advert for just it said junior wanted for a london studio and oh. um i thought and i went along and i had no idea that you know they received so many applications and people were so desperate so i kind of got the job somehow and uh i thought this i mean i was just kind of very blase about it i thought well, this will do for a few months you know, I had a bar and some nice girls working there and they could hang around with musicians and all that kind of stuff. And I thought I was still going to be the next Rick Wakeman or something. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That was your ambition, to be the next Rick Wakeman? Oh, yeah, yeah. I was, I was a really shit keyboard player that kind of really wanted to um, be, you know, I was, I was heavily into prog rock at the time and kind of that's what I thought I was going to be doing. But luckily, I uh, had to make the choice of doing overt- overtime in studio or rehearsals and I kind of made the right choice. Good. The band wasn't going anywhere. Interesting. Very lucky break there. Um, and so, yeah, I, I stuck it out. I mean, I was doing kind of usual, making the tea, uh, assisting on lots of sessions, which now looking back, I was just I was just so lucky. I mean, the place was owned by Jeff Rattoll. Yeah. And uh, you could soak up so much through osmosis just by being around, you know, day, day in, day out. And um, there weren't any college courses, but you sort of just learned, you know, it's by watching right. and listening. So uh, you mentioned, you know, Rick Wakeman as an influence. Were you the big keyboard guy? Because that that would show in a lot of your work, especially in the eighties. You know. Yeah, I guess it. I guess so. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, mean, I was not really not very good keyboard player at all, but I certainly that was my interest. Okay. Um, and particularly in the early eighties, when that technology was, you know, really coming through a lot of synths and uh, yeah. well, drum machines as well. But but I really, really, really got excited by that period and uh, all, that, all that stuff coming out, just, yeah, right up my street. I get confused sometimes when I talk to producers because sometimes they're producers, sometimes they're engineers, sometimes they're mixers. And yeah. lay people like me don't always know what the difference is. You know what I mean? Or yeah. If you're yeah. wearing multiple hats. So maybe you could define it for me. What do you consider yourself first and foremost? I consider myself well it's interesting now i consider myself just as mixer because that's really all i do uh, i don't do any production anymore um, but i certainly started out as an engineer but i think out of the assistants in the studio i was the only one who had any kind of musical background really in terms of playing and being in a band and i found that um in terms of what your, your question about producing i just found i had to produce it because they didn't know you know no one knew what was going on and i did have a vision yeah. so although i was engineering and um i was doing both i was wearing both hats you know so on the back of that, we I did I, I sent off one of these tapes to a record company, and uh, I got a feedback that said that we don't like the band, but we like the sound. You know, we got like, like the production, and can you do some 
freelance engineering, and I was still like an assistant. But yeah, I was I always saw engineering and producing as kind of going together. Now there are a lot of engineers, great engineers out there who don't, I think, who just are quite happy doing that role, you know, just the engineering role, and don't really want to either because they're not good at it or they just don't not interested in in crossing over. But for me, it was always integral, you know. So what would then the primary, you know, as your as an engineer on a session, what is your primary responsibility? What is the thing you're listening for most of all? If you're just purely engineering, I mean, it's it's just, um, well, checking everything sounds good. I'm mean, as simple as that, really. Okay. I mean, obviously you're checking, well, okay, so that's the final thing that people are going to judge you on. But obviously, um, it's, you've got to be quick, you've got to be amenable, you know, you've got to be, you know, make sure the headphone balance is good. Um, you know, and just be, I mean, efficient is, is the main thing. So although that's, that's the day-to-day side of it, which um, I think is probably pretty different now because it's just such a different way of making records. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we, we'd be doing, um, you know, it's just such an old old school thing, but we do a lot of jingles, you know, in the mornings, mm-hmm. which is fantastic training. I mean, you'd be doing like, you know, three different versions of the same advert would be done in three hours from start to finish, you know, right. mix them. And um, I'd be assisting on that initially, and then I'd start taking over doing some of the engineering, and that was just fantastic training. You're working with great musicians, um, so you, you basically most engineers, I think, a good rule of thumb is just don't say much, you know, unless you're right. really asked. I mean, certainly for assistants, you don't say anything. Would you say then mixing is after everything's been rec- my understanding, and I'm not a musician, everything's been recorded, and you're you're the one kind of moving the levels, you know, like the drum yeah. drum needs to be higher here and we need more guitar here and less this that's basically it i mean it's again that's changed a lot because um there weren't really any specialized mixers back then i mean maybe maybe in a few but it wasn't a big deal like it is now Hmm. um so basically most of the time you would make the you'd finish recording and then you start the mix and that was it and be the same crew same studio and uh that was just the end of the process and it really was um a lot of the times for technical reasons you'd end up with two or three things on the same track. So you'd have like a, a tambourine and a middle eight and a guitar solo at the end and a harmony in the second verse. So they'd all be at the wrong level. Every time you were working, you were just constantly, you're never hearing the track as it should be. Nothing was quite as it should be. And so really, when you came to the mix, it's the first time you could actually split everything up its own channel and hear everything at the correct levels. And that was, a lot of the time, that was kind of what all you did, you know, with a bit of... Mm-hmm sonic tweakery here and there and a bit of reverb or whatever you know there wasn't sometimes you didn't change things hugely it was just a question of getting everything as it should be so when you uh like for instance at the mixing stage is the artist there with you or are you sort of taking everything away later on working kind of on your own well okay that's that really depends um I think usually, well, certainly an artist who's, you know, the writer or, or a group would, would usually be there, not necessarily from right from the beginning, but certainly they, they want to be involved most of the time. I think more with the, with the kind of pop stuff, I think, no, it's, it's usually the artist doesn't get much of a look in, you know, and it's, uh-huh. um, they do their bit and it's taken away. And nowadays, I mean, you'll have, you know, different mixes doing the vocals and different mixes doing this and that, you know, it's, it's, it's so um, fragmented. Yeah. Okay. I very, very, very rarely get any visits now. And um, all the feedback is email. And I really, really miss it. It's certainly, I really don't think it's, it's good. Um, yeah. You know, 20 years ago, you'd be on, you'd be on a desk or a board and uh, the band would come in in the morning or whenever it was and you'd spend a few hours on it and that was it. It was signed off, done. You know? Yeah. You know, it's just so much easier if someone says, can we just try turning that thing up a little bit? Mm. You can do mm-hmm. it. And then you go, 
Yeah, not quite that much. Uh-huh. That takes five seconds. Right. That would be, you know, <laughs> two or three MP3s and emails yeah, going back. And you'd be kind of, you're second guessing. You're kind of going, okay, I want to tell enough enough so they can hear a difference. Right. So, uh, I mean, the first big thing that I can see on All Music anyway is Genesis's Duke album. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, Turn It On Again is a fantastic There's lots of fantastic songs on that album. This, yeah. Now, it says you're an assistant. Were you a T-boy at the time, or were you doing stuff? Yeah, it was kind of interesting because I first started working with their producer, David Henschel, who was a producer engineer. And I was a massive Genesis fan mm. earlier on. And so I kind of hassled to be on that session. And uh, But he was very – it was the first time ever he'd actually asked me as an assistant that I'd never been asked to go around and help out on the board. I don't even know why, really. I mean, maybe it was normally it was a producer and an engineer or the band were around. But anyway, it's just, so it's just me and him. So it was a really nice little team. And I'd also do all the edits, the analog edits, which, you know, were back with a razor blade chopping the tape, right. which I'd never been asked to do before that. And he just said, right, there you go, get on with it. And I kind of thought, well, wow, I've never actually done this on a, on a real session, in a proper session, you know, but I kind of, I did know what I was, I knew what I was doing. But anyway, so that was kind of nice. So it was a bit more than an assistant. My tool technically was an assistant, T-boy. But um, I was more of, you know, kind of like a deputy engineer, I guess. You know? Okay. So yeah, a bit later on, when they were going to go to Sweden to do initially uh, Tony Banks' solo album, mm-hmm. uh, and then followed up by Mike Rutherford, and then the Genesis album, Duke, he asked me to go with him to do that, which is kind of unheard of. So that was hugely exciting um, for me. Although, but again, I was kind of really blasé because then I thought, oh, Genesis, you know, that was... Uh-huh. I hadn't bought the last couple of albums. I mean, I was a massive fan, but I'd kind of gone off it, you know. And of course, now, I mean, that album, I still play it occasionally. I think it's, um, I, I read that Tony Banks actually thinks it's one of his, Genesis, you know, the Genesis' favorite albums. Did you get to know the guys very well? I mean, are, are, do you, yeah. did you know, it sounds like you worked with Tony, but did, did you know Phil? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, um, yeah, because I was, you know, those days you were there the, every day on the whole album. So yeah. they, they're a bit older than me, so we never, you know, we weren't best buddies, but um, yeah. But I did actually, I got to know um, the guy called Nick Davis, who's remixed all their back catalogue, worked with them exclusively pretty much for the last, I don't know, 20 years probably. Hmm. And he lives nearby me and their studio, which I think they've kind of finally got rid of, but it's quite near me. So um, 
I said to Nick, oh, well, you know, we'll have to come over and have a look at the studio and we'll do lunch. And uh, he said, oh, yeah, Tony will come out and say hello, which was pretty nice, you know. Yeah. Great. So nice, one of those examples of meeting your heroes. And even at the time, I was kind of a bit arrogant and thought, well, you know, I'm not into this anymore. But <laughs> now it's like, you know, it's a huge, huge thing for me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay, we got, I got to ask you about Level 42, The Pursuit of Accidents. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's got Chinese Way on it, which is one of their best songs. I love it. I love those guys. I had Mike Lind up on here last year or something like that. Uh, oh, right. Um, yeah, cool. Tell me about Level 42. Well, that was much more of a just a T-boy role. So, I um, I mean, I really don't remember much about those sessions, to be honest, because that was – they had a producer, engineer, and I was, you know, one of the kind of assistants, as I think. Um, but I know I got – actually, I do remember something about that because they were running out of – up against a deadline. So they booked both rooms at, uh, at Mainz Road, Studio 1 and 2. Mm-hmm. And I think it was, I think I'm right in saying that Arif Mardin was there. Um, I don't know why, but uh, wow. he must have been sort of supervising it. Anyway, so most of the band were in one studio with the producer and the engineer. And then I was ended up doing vocals with, um, God, I can't remember, Mark. Must Mark, have been. Mark King. Uh, yeah, yeah. In the other studio with Arif Mardin producing. Mm. So that was quite a buzz, you know. Um, yeah. And that, that sort of, that was those moments kind of happen every now and again, you know, where I they kind of knew I could be trusted to do that kind of stuff. Amazing. Um, but I wasn't huge. I mean, apart from that, really, you know, a few days, it was, okay. it was just kind of making the tea, to be honest. I mean, I, I really enjoyed the music. It was great. Boy, I love this. I love just throwing these names out there and getting these stories. <laughs> so I got to, um, now, Echo and the Bunnymen, the Porcupine album, uh, The Back of Love is one of my favorite tracks of theirs. Oh, yeah. I'm on the chopping block, chopping up my stopping thoughts. Self-doubt and selfism were the cheapest things I ever bought. When you said to love, to in the back of love. When you said to love, to in the back of love. When taking advantage of, breaking the back of love. When taking advantage of. From what I understand, it was working with them that really started to kind of build some momentum in your career. I think that's what the website says. It was anyway. really, yeah. Tell me about it. Literally, I just got the call pretty much out of the blue. Um, I think it was one of the first few freelance engineer things I'd done at Maison Rouge. Uh, a big, you know, a big session anyway. But again, I was still a staff assistant, really. In fact, I do remember going on doing this album uh, up in the north of England in Liverpool. And the whole scene was so, so different to what yeah. I was used to in London, which is all kind of 
shiny pop, you know, we were doing Wham and Duran Duran and all right. this kind of stuff. And, you know, the, and the bunny room was the kind of bower, um, you know, raincoat brigade sort of thing. So it was quite a, it was a re- real culture shock, but it was so, it's great. It's so much fun. And because um, I met Ian Brody, who, Ooh, he's still a really good friend of mine. Yeah, yeah I mean, he's, he was producing and he's still a really good mate. So, um, but I do remember distinctly having done this album, which at the time I didn't, you know, no one knows what it was going to do, but I've been engineering this thing. And then I went back to Maison Rouge and I was making the tea on Wham's first single. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> because he was working in a studio that was kind of really on the up in the early 80s. And we, just, we were getting everyone coming through. Yeah. And um, there's a show called Top of the Pops in England. Well, not any, not anymore. But okay, right. you know it. Yeah, we may as well talk on the about this now. Candleland was Ian McCulloch's solo album that came out yeah. around eighty nine or ninety. That's one of my favorite albums ever. I love oh, cool. that album. It's so beautiful, and he has a reputation as being just a notoriously difficult guy. But you must have <laughs> found a way to make it work because you've, you've done a couple of things. I think I only did one track with him. I can't, I can't remember maybe a couple of things on that album, but so. Uh, Oh, so you didn't do all of Candleland? No, no, I don't think so. I was doing a lot of kind of stuff at that time, and I, but that's why I think it was. Well, the reason I can't remember is I think it was just one track, you know, mm. every couple of days, and maybe maybe a couple of tracks. But it wasn't like you know locked into the studio for weeks. Okay. Which is why obviously I, I remember it better. Um, I'm of the opinion that Will Sargent is one of the most underappreciated guitarists. Absolutely, ever. Well, I totally agree. agree. I love his playing. It's fantastic. Yes. Just basically, what I love about bands is that you don't have to be technically great. It's just your ideas. So, there's a friend of mine called Gil Norton who you may oh, know. Oh, sure, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, he started out in the same studio where I did Back on the Bunnyman, this place called Amazon up in Liverpool, and he was like a junior there. He used to have a little eight track room which Gil worked in most of the time, and then we were in, like, in the big room. But Gil had worked with. Uh, the Bunnyman really early on. Um, I'm not sure which, which stuff it was. It's just demos. No, I think he'd done more than demos, but he certainly went on to, he went on to produce the thing. Anyway, he, he remember, I remember him saying he couldn't believe Will because he didn't know, Will didn't have to know how to tune his guitar and Gil had to do it. <laughs> Gil's not a guitarist. Really? Yeah. And I, I, don't, I mean, that's, that's not any way to diss Will because I think no, of course not. It's, it's all about the ideas, you know, yeah. and, the fact, and I think it's really, it's a really lovely story. You know? Yeah. Because the guy, you know, he's just, he gets a fantastic sound. He gets yes. great parts. And, you know, and I, I just love it. It's the anti, it's the anti virtuoso thing, which I really love about that. You know. Yeah, um, yeah, I love them, and I feel like Porcupine was the album where they really started to blossom into what they would become. You know what I mean? Ocean yeah. Rain was obviously kind of the breakthrough, but I felt like Porcupine yeah. was the the step that made Ocean Rain possible you know what i mean yeah 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 i think that's, I think that's um, right yeah it's funny because i go to a little pub here you know it's kind mm-hmm. of studenty place and now and again the cutter comes on i just think yeah <laughs> and they, they go do you do that <laughs> <laughs> hang on these 20 how do you know oh, this stuff? that's great now songs from the big chair tears for fears are like a top 10 favorite band of all time in fact i always say those first three tears for fears albums I want to just live inside them. I love them so much, so deeply. Wow. You know what I mean? And I know a lot of people do. And uh, so yeah. how did you come to, no one could have predicted what would have happened or what did happen with songs from the big chair from a little band like them. But how did you get involved? Tell me the story. Just a huge turning point in my life. So yeah. 
after Maison Rouge, I was working in a studio called Livingston, um, which I mentioned a, a while ago. And then I kind of finally quit that, um, really with, with not enough contacts, but I had, I'd done a, quite a lot of stuff. But I was just fed up with being a house engineer. Yeah. And some of the stuff I've been doing there was for this guy, Max Hole, again, at uh, WEA. Um, I, I ended up, I, overall, I'd done a quite a few, a few bits and pieces for him. And he managed Chris Hughes, his, as you know, he's uh, a sure. producer. Yep. So I'd been a huge Tears for Fears fan. In fact, I play, I'd played the first album and um, that and Talk Talk's first album. I oh. used to play those, both, both those albums to death. So I was literally at home and um, Tears, I think the Tears for Fears had tried, had a couple of full starts on that album. Mm. And uh, I think they tried to go off with some other people, other producers, hadn't worked out. And they got Chris back in, but they didn't want to work with Ross Cullum again who was kind of Chris, Chris's engineer and kind of co-producer um well for various reasons which I'll come to but so basically they were in the studio and they didn't have an engineer and Max ran me at home and said are you doing it today because Tears of Fears need an engineer <laughs> I was going uh-huh. what but yeah I, mean, I, I could probably manage that so uh, it was just happened to be in the right place at the right time and um yeah, and it went from there really. But just just a, just that thing about Ross because um, Ross is a fantastic engineer. But I think um, him and Chris are very close and kind of had the same repartee and and um, were a bit of a kind of formidable team to it's like um, as a producer you know, if you, to roll into sort of battle against sometimes mm-hmm. if, you, if that makes sense, you know. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so I think he felt it was just you know he wanted he wanted Christian, but but maybe not. Chris times two. Got it. Okay. Um, Anyway, so yeah, that was, um, that was it. Is the dynamic of that relationship is Roland more the creative force uh, than Kurt? Okay. I assume that. That's very fair to say, uh, but not to diminish Kurt's contribution at all, because like any great band, they're not a band or a duo, but Mm -hmm. Kurt might not be there at the cold face all the time, but he's there when it counts, you know, and, um, the example I always give is a bit later on on Seeds of Love, where Roland had written that, that song, saying Seeds of Love, almost in its entirety, which is, you know, very intricate, mm-hmm. fantastic arrangement and everything. And then um, I wasn't there, but apparently Kurt just came in and, and Roland didn't, the, the chorus just was, um, so uh, anything is possible when you're mm-hmm. so in the Seeds of Love. And then Kurt just came in and sort of talked to me, so in the Seeds of Love. Really? The great thing about the dynamics of a band or a duo is that they, you know, it's a, it's a, not an obvious role sometimes, but um, very valuable. Right. But yeah, Roland was definitely the, the main songwriter and um, main driver. I had heard something recently that when they, I don't know if this is true or not, maybe you can tell me, when they originally uh, sort of presented the album, the label didn't hear any singles. And so that's when they went back and did Shout and Everybody Wants to Rule the World. Does that sound right? Well, I don't know if they actually presented the album. Um, initially, yeah, Head Over Heels was really the only obvious single. And it was crucial, basically, said, we need you know, some more stuff. And um, I do know that Roland had come up with just the main chorus line in Shout. Mm. And uh, I, mean, I, I, just, I know this from Chris, because we were talking about it the other day, but um, Ian Stanley went to Roland's house and heard this and called up Chris and said, you've got to come in and hear this. And literally, it just went round and round that refrain. Yeah. 
mention an additional thing one of the things that i wanted to ask you about about some of the stuff is can you think of a is there a moment on that album that you particularly felt like was a contribution you made you know like i'm the one who suggested this it doesn't even i know that album backwards and forward it doesn't have to be something major just some little thing this is so not major it's so inconsequential but it Uh is the only thing i can definitely put my finger on that was a 
um, or something, which is in head over heels. And it's a little kind of pizzicato string thing. It goes dum 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 dum. Oh. I think it might be in the second verse. I'm just trying to think. Yes, I remember that part. My mother and my father used to whatever. And That's uh, it. that and there's yeah, a little staccato. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That well, was you. That was that was me and Rowan. Not my part, but Ro, um, I was just working with Rowan in the studio that time, and we just tried to come up with the sound. And I said, "What about pizzicato strings?" And he went, "Yeah, great." Yes, so that was. <laughs> I love it. I think Roland said to, to someone, you know, I think he said to my girlfriend actually, because um, she was friends with us, said, you know, Dave's going to be a great producer, which is lovely. He didn't, he didn't say it to me directly, but um, so he, he did occasionally ask me for stuff, but I say there was a lot, there's a lot of, um, yeah, egos and um, a lot of really smart people in the room. And uh, I wasn't going to, you know, we'd have this, it was the first time I'd ever been, a pro, uh, been involved in a process like that, actually, um, where, Everything was discussed. Yeah. Um, every little point it had to be absolutely valid, meet all the criteria. Um, and I wasn't used to that. I, mean, I, I was kind of thrown a bit by it, obviously, but that's why it turned out to be such a special album. You know, that, that care was taken. As it was being made, were expectations for what that album could do starting to change? I mean, The Hurting, as you said, is such a great album, but it wasn't yeah. on this. I'm only, you know, I can only go by the States. Those songs were being played on college radio or alternative radio, yeah, not yeah. necessarily on the pop charts, not that much. It would have been normal for a label to think, well, let's just keep capitalizing on that. We have a little niche there that we can work. But yeah. are they starting to hear these songs and think, actually, we can go much bigger and broader? Or was that a fluke? The caliber of the songs is so great. That yeah. It needed a kind of a, an adjustment and a push to make it international. You know? Yeah. Um, but I know Roland was fighting against that. I think that's why I say I was kind of his ally because... I do remember him saying once, I'm happy with this, what I've got, you know, and they were very successful in England. Yeah. And uh, he said, I don't, don't really know if I want, I don't want to be an international star. You know, I mean, he wasn't interested in being a star anyway, but um, that sounds ironic now, having you know, sold millions mm-hmm. of albums later. But um, I think, and he was slightly facetious perhaps, but um, I re- it wasn't a burning desire, certainly from him, yeah. uh, to be a global superstar. I mean, he just wanted to make, music that interested him, which I suppose most good artists do, you know. Right. Um, but there was certainly a push. Uh, you know, a lot of people saw the potential of them as a band. Yeah. Um, yeah, there was certainly a push to make it more international. Okay. So then by the time, you know, Seeds of Love happens and their sound continues to evolve, um, what are those talks like? Are they, is it another thing where it's like we've got to build on what we've done or we want to continue to expand or what? Everything's very different by this point. Mm-hmm. Um and certain people's ideas have gone a bit bit crazy as far as I was concerned. Uh, and I think there's a kind of, there's a, well, I say it's an urban myth that they were told to go and spend as much as money as they like, take as long as they like, but make the perfect album, mm. which is, as we all know, is the, the opposite of how a perfect album is made, really. Yeah. Um, and it just meant for endless prevarication and, um, and so on. So, and I think, you know, obviously the pressure of following up something like Songs for Big Chair, and the longer you leave it, the more the pressure, you know, the expectation goes up, and the less you want to mm-hmm. put it out there, put your baby out, and send your baby out into the world. So, very, very, very different. I mean, obviously, massive pressure for more of the same. Mm-hmm. Um, but Roman had completely moved on mentally, you know, by then. I mean, like a lot of most decent artists don't want to just repeat themselves yeah. much as a company would like them to. 
and he really had changed direction you know, substantially by then. So, um, yeah, I mean, I was very, although I was co-producing it, I was very not privy to all that record company stuff. Thank God. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't. I, I, Chris Hughes, Chris on the Songs for Club was very. I mean, he's good friends with David Bates, the A and R guy, and they had a lot of discussions about all this kind of stuff. But uh, I never did. I was, um, no. Luckily for me, I was, was not privy to all that. Yeah, kind of stay behind the scenes. I've um, yeah. I've had Olita Adams on here, and ah. um, she's such a sweet lady. Yeah, Woman in Chains is one of the greatest tunes ever. Um, just heart wrenching. Can you, uh, again, going similar question to seeds of love. Can you think of a, of a moment on C on, or going back to songs from the big chair, can you think of a moment on seeds of love that was uniquely your own or something you kind of put a stamp on oh. or rec- recommended? God, not really in the same way because I was more involved, you know, obviously as a co-producer genuinely. So, yeah. um, but it's still Roland's, really Roland's baby, that album. So I can't think of anything I found, actually, not in the same way that I could put my finger. I may, I may do later, but... Um, and again, and you mentioning it being kind of Roland's baby was Kurt. Is this where, I mean, it sounds like there's tension in this relationship anyway, but this is the moment where it just becomes un, undoable anymore, right? They can't do it. Well, I one of the main reasons for the relationship breakdown, I suppose, is because Roland started uh, writing songs for his own voice more, you know, mm. and uh, initially Roland didn't like his own voice, wasn't confident, and Kurt had the perfect, you know, voice for the songs he wrote in you know, the hurting era yeah. and for stuff like we Runs to All the World. But um, Roland was getting more and more confident and um, it became more and more difficult to, to find things for Kurt to sing. So that raises obvious mm-hmm. um, problems, really. Plus the album was very long, very tortuous. Kurt was never really interested in the day-to-day nitty-gritty of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, it became, you know, when he wasn't there and we thought we were doing all the work, obviously he became more and more kind of out of it. Yeah. And um, again, I was there with Roland every day. I was kind of Roland's mate. So I really wasn't prepared to stick up for Kurt as much as I should have done, maybe, you know. Um, so, yeah. I mean, but again, you know, I've told you that the, the sowing the seeds of love example. You know, yeah. <laughs> he came up with what was really the, Although it's a hugely hooky record, that was the kind of bit that yeah. people were whistling, you know. So yeah, that's what ties it together. Okay, that's about what I've heard from other people about the kind of nature of the relationship right then. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, we got to talk about Peter Gabriel's So, where oh, are yeah. you on yeah. So? How, and is So a, a a byproduct of Seeds of Lo- or a big chair? Is Peter Gabriel saying I want more of this? Uh, no, it seems. Yeah, I think I, I certainly that um, Peter had heard the big chair. So, uh, and of course, we all, we lived in Bath, so it was all part of the same, you know, the um, crew. We used, you know, the same musicians were hanging around. Um, that's a weird one because obviously I engineered the backing, some of the backing tracks on that, and for various reasons it didn't work out. I, me and Daniel Loire didn't really get on, mm. and um, I just didn't want to be stuck in this environment. Um, and again, it sounds crazy you know you know it's very small to be there in the first place but um it was a very 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 different working relation working system as than we'd had for tears for fears where mm. i kind of felt we were on the same page and um and we'd go out at night and have fun you know yeah. and uh yeah. peter obviously is a bit older and we were we were basically locked in this uh, place he had this lovely little this beautiful house mm-hmm. in the country and uh the studio was in the barn but we never 
got to go out of town. I, mm. And I just felt a bit trapped, really. This wasn't for various reasons. I think the working process was um, kind of not. I think, well, but the thing is, everyone knew if a job had to be done, you know, like um, mm. I had to go and edit or something, they go, yeah, we'll go and play some pool or something. And uh, you get on with Dave and we'll come back when it's done. But I think with Peter, it'd be kind of like, right. I want this done, but I want to do this at the same time. And uh, oh. can we, yeah. And while I was doing my thing, it's like something else was going on over there. And it was like, um, yeah, it's not really as understanding of the process as I, as I was used to. So, okay. Um, okay. yeah, I, and um, yeah, and, you know, I don't, I don't think they thought I was doing a great job either. So. <laughs> yeah. Do you hear yourself anywhere on that album now? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think I, as far as I remember, it's, it was a bit flaky, but uh, to remember what exactly what what. I, parts I played, but I think I recorded the bass on Sledgehammer, oh. amongst other things, so I okay. do remember sitting there with Tony, Tony Levin doing that. You could have a big dipper Going up and down All around the bends You could have a bunch of car Bumping There's amusement Never ends I want And I recorded lots of uh, most of Manu's drums, uh-huh. Manu Cacho's drums. He's the best. Uh, yeah, so quite a lot of it, but obviously it went through so many changes. I don't really know. Um, there was one of the songs, and I can't which one it was. Um, it might be Mercy Street, where Peter had a big arrangement idea in mind, and literally I was just pushing buttons to facilitate this. But it mm-hmm. was um, that was quite a nice moment. I think it's just me and him, and mm. I had to keep doing this, this thing while he was working on a vocal or something. But um, that was quite okay. Got a nice bonding moment, I suppose. Amazing. Was Rosetta Arquette around, or was that later? That was later, yeah. Okay. Uh, I know they started yeah. dating about this time, but I couldn't remember if it was during the creation of the I album. think it was a bit like, I do remember, I think vaguely, I think, I, um, can't, I did see her a few times, and I can't remember exactly, I think it was when he built Real World, but I might oh, be wrong. maybe, okay. Which was a, a few a year or so later, or probably yeah. a couple of years later, I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Now we got to talk about Depeche Mode, music for the masses. I mean, you're you're on kind of a streak here, obviously. I mean, <laughs> to me, it's a streak that's never ended, but commercially, you're on a massive streak with all mm. this stuff. How did music for the masses happen? Well, I don't know exactly why I got the call, but I think um, that Dave Garn had heard probably um, Shout mm. and liked it and suggested me for the for the job because um, it is vaguely kind of Depeche Mode-y, that, sure. that track. Um but obviously, the reason they wanted someone else anyway is because Daniel had decided that they wanted a change in the, the way they were making their records. And up to then, it being Daniel had been involved in all the albums, right. Daniel Miller, right. um, usually with Gareth Jones. Um, and I think they maybe made two or three albums with that team on the trot. And Daniel you know, just didn't have the time and wanted a change. Um, so, yeah, they asked me to come in and basically co produce it, which is kind of how I did it with. The Roland really on the phone seeds of love a bit later. Um, so, yeah, strictly engineer and co producer. Mm. Um, but that was a massively enjoyable album to make. I mean, again, we were 
almost exactly the same ages, and we like yeah. we're in the same same sort of tastes, and we had the same same vision on it, and we'd go out clubbing every night and have fun. It was, it was really really hard work. I mean, we've been some serious hours, but uh-huh. um, you know, it was they were just really really great guys, and uh, it was very good. Very nice to do. Does Martin Gore wear S and M gear like in the light of day? <laughs> <laughs> you know, no. he doesn't. I didn't know if he was no. showing up at the studio at like you know ten a.m. and he's got his you know no. nipple chains on and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> no, no, I don't think he. I don't think he wore it out either to the clubs generally. But um, okay, no. okay, that album is as the title suggests huge. It was made, I think, to sort of attract a much wider audience they had kind of like tears for fear has been sort of building this this uh audience this fan base you know little by little it was getting bigger and bigger yeah um can you think of a moment on that album that you're particularly proud of well i love never let me down for the first time i i heard that demo i just thought it was just so great <laughs> think of it as I, as I say probably a lot of fans do it's a transition album to violator um but I, so i was I mean, again i was as an engineer co-producer i wasn't directing the shots calling the shots but i was quite pleased that we were moving away from this the slightly you know the industrial stuff and putting a few guitars on and generally making it a bit more not commercial but you know yeah maybe sort of say paving the way to a chart a more of a chart a general chart especially in america i guess but yeah, Never Let Me Down was just the, the perfect sort of synthesis of the kind of rocky stuff that they got into a bit later, but also with the electronics. And I'd always wanted to use the drum sound from When the Debbie Breaks, which is, you know, they're, they're, they're been that everybody, obviously. Yeah. It's supposed to use a million times now, but I don't think, I don't think anybody done it then or hardly anybody. So I just thought these would be the perfect drum sounds for, the, for Never Let Me Down. So we, we mixed it with a few other things, but um, really, that's the basic flavor. Yeah, yeah. Would that be considered almost a sample? The sample of yeah, that? Oh, yeah, really? Yeah, yeah. But don't don't tell Led Zeppelin. But I think it's a bit late for that. But yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's um, we started. I mean, the whole they had a very strange way of working to me, which is the first few days in the studio would be just gathering samples, gathering sounds. Yeah. Um, whereas up until then, I'd always, you know, if I needed a sound, I'd, I'd, I'd go and find it. I'd go and make it. But they sort of go out and. Um, we could a collection of modern, you know, new sounds that we'd sample in the studio, and you know, we put together some of my sound, my collection, and old stuff they had, and that would kind of go on and you know form the kind of flavor of the album. You know, 
that was dictate in some senses how the album was going to go. So, and then, you know, some of them were just were stolen, if you like, yeah. like the Levy, when the Levy Breaks ones, and a lot of them were made or, you know, came from all sorts, all over the place. But, um, yeah, that was a big part of the process was okay. you know, choosing those sounds. Um, what is a pimp? Yeah, it's a Nazi youth. I think it's um, oh. whatever the, whatever the um, Nazi youth corps was called. There was a name for them, I can't remember. But anyway, they were, the individual members were, were pimps, oh, apparently. Okay. Yeah, so very much part of that, um, you know, Martin's... I, I sensed a fear uh, in your silence that you felt like you had to just explain to me what a pimp was. <laughs> well, you, I, think you, I don't know if you tried Googling it. I haven't. But, uh, you know, it's probably going to raise a few flags. But, um, oh, but the weird thing about it, I mean, obviously it's got this huge Wagnerian epicness to it, uh-huh. which I just think is fantastic. Um, anyway, I, when I saw them, um, they used to use it as intro music. Uh, back in the day, or certainly on that tour, the music of massive tour, and I saw them on a big stadium in Paris, and um, it was quite weird. I mean, because it was so stirring, and it was uh-huh. so much like this could be a rally or something. You know, yeah. if you wanted to come out and and do something dangerous here, you could get people lapping it up because it was so powerful. You know, but it's just, yeah. well, that's what I love about Martin. He's got such eclectic taste, and then you got the coast from the kind of the glam rock stuff um uh-huh. to you know the electronica and then this kind of operatic thing it's just yeah. it's so broad i mean i think that's what's part of their uh, you know overlooked um their, their appeal really you know that makes him such a great songwriter because he's such, got such a broad taste which is all the best artists have as far as yeah. i'm concerned you know yeah. um, um i feel like i should ask because you've met you've brought up wham a couple times did you work with wham i assisted on one record which was uh young guns that's oh, the one i was talking about where i, where I came back from doing a good moment right uh, but again yeah i i in fact, I'd just been doing some engineering with culture club and i remember george um george michael saying oh what's boy george like you know <sighs> but i didn't know anything about them i just thought this is a but this was a i absolutely loved this whole kind of new pop stuff when pop got exciting again and uh, i thought as you tell george was george michael was just an incredibly smart guy um because this was pretty much the first record in got that made that I was aware of anyway and um, I remember his, his involvement he was, was a producer and an engineer um, I was just the assistant but I remember him coming up with some comments I thought wow this guy is really you know really um, knows what he wants and we were doing like an extended version there was some delays going on that were kind of a bit spacey and he just said yeah, can you make them half as much you know, twice as um, mm. half as long sorry yeah and it kind of sort of instantly became really modern and snappy and cool. I thought, oh, yeah, this guy's really got it. Huh. Um, which, you know, yeah. so that was that was a treat to be involved with that. But I mean, that's it was very, it was really making the tea for a few days. Okay. Because that was okay. it. And uh, yeah. you mentioned, you kind of touched on this earlier. I think people are confused by what Andrew Ridgely's contribution truly is. I, I've always viewed him as just somebody who empowers George to be George. You know what I mean? Very well put. Yeah, very well put. Yeah. That's right. Um, yeah, I think he's, I don't know what his musical input was. I mean, I, I think I think when I was working with him, they were actually just mixing, so neither of them really had much to do. Okay. Um, no one was playing or anything. So George's contribution, or George's comments were um, not that many, but when they, you know, but when the, what they were was were really spot on. I don't think Andrew really contributed much in that sense. Okay. But, uh, yeah, that's about what I figured. Okay. Um, 
Okay, so I I gotta ask you about some of the littler guys. We've been talking about these big big acts, big albums. Um, somewhere in here, did you work with Redbox on the Circle in the Square? Yeah, I did one, maybe a couple of tracks with them. That was uh, obviously Chris Hughes. Uh-huh. Being asked oh, that's to come right. In I and, forgot the uh, connection. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think they were actually, again, I think they might have been signed. They were. They were signed to Max Holdway. So, again, that's another thing to him. And they um, just got stuck on, I think it was Lean on Me. Are we happy? Are we scared? Are we shouting? Circle, Chris Cummings going to rework it and remix it. And I was, you know, Chris asked me just finished doing songs in the chair. So I came in and did that with him. Okay. And uh, that was a great song. That was a uh, hey, really nice guy. So, yeah. Yeah. Good fun. I've had Simon on here and um, ah. I love them. And I just think the circle and the square, I always say this to anyone who will listen. I think it's one of the most fascinating bursts of creativity that I've ever heard on a record. Every song feels like it's pulling from 10 different nationalities and sounds and yeah. countries, and yet it works for pop music. It's fascinating, yeah. you know? I felt there was a lot of that kind of stuff going on in England at the time. I don't know about the States, really. Um, but I think it was such a creative time. I mean, you know, not to take it, I mean, they were fantastic, but there were, I felt a lot of bands doing some really, really cool stuff yeah. at the time. Yeah. Their producer originally was this guy called David Motioner. Um, I don't know what's happened to him, but... Um, I could fairly say he imprinted the sound, you know, mm. the, on that record, and um, I think Chris reworked it. But um, okay, yeah, uh, he was a very, very good producer. It's so good. I just interviewed Gary Clark yesterday. And You're joking? No, I love him. You know, I love that band too. <laughs> I haven't seen him for years because he's obviously been in LA, as you know. Uh-huh. Um, and we've spoken a couple of times, but I did a mix for him recently, which was lovely. Um, and he was going to come down, but uh, had other commitments, so yeah. he couldn't make it in the end. But that was such a treat. And he's he's doing this, um, well, I'm sure he told you, he's doing this TV series. Yeah. And the song that he, he asked me to mix was him singing on it, which is just a joy. It's so nice to hear work on a track where he's singing again. You know? Yeah. Yeah, he uh, he was a good dude. And that's a great album. So if I say, say, say. And I did a few more. I think I did a, about six tracks on the album altogether. That was such an enjoyable thing to do. Yeah. I mean, he's absolutely great. Jed, the bass player, is just brilliant as well. A true band, you know, in yeah. the sense of very much Gary's songs and he's singing them, but the contributions to the other guys is just immense, you know. I mean, yeah. Jed came up with some fantastic guitar parts and, you know, other parts that um, 
worked way beyond just the bass playing. You know, it's just incredible that you get this talent coming out of a little place called, you know, in Dundee. Right. Um, yeah. Right. And of course, and I think Gary, I don't know if he said it on your interview, but he was talking this morning about how it was kind of um, almost a deliberate attempt to go against what was happening at the time, you know, um, which was what was so healthy about the music in the 80s for me anyway, is that you could do this this stuff and not have to kind of follow any particular trend. And there was there seemed to be so much room for people to do experimental stuff and, you know, to be a market for it. Yeah. Although, as I'm sure we told you, it took three attempts for Mary's Bread to actually break through. But, uh, which is, you know, bit, but I, I was, you know, I didn't really, I was just thought, oh, another one, that's a shame they got away at the time because right. you know, you're working on quite a lot of stuff. That was probably the first um, of my actual peer productions I'd done was a hit, I think. Really? Um, yeah, I mean, it's certainly, I remember it's been one of my most, most proud ones, anyway, because certainly, I mean, because like, a lot of the co-productions I'd done were really not, you know, was me as a, as a co-producer, as, as an ally, if you like. Yeah. But this is something I really had kind of driven quite, although, you know, not to take away anything from the song, but it was, I did have a bit of a vision on it, and it, um, I was very, very proud of it. So Interesting. And I still am. Let's go to James. You worked on Sit Down? Yeah, yeah. Those who feel all the breath of sadness sit down next to me. Those who find they're touched by madness sit down next to me. Those who find themselves ridiculous sit down next to me. In love and fear and hate and Friend of mine, that friend of mine, Gil Norton, produced it, and uh, either the band or the record company weren't quite happy with the mix. So I went in and we did a few things, and I kind of went in quite a different vision from Gil's. And then I remember playing to my manager, and I thought, because it's quite a, an old arrangement, you know. Right. Again, going back to the band thing, it's definitely a song that's written by a band, or at least thrash, the arrangement's been thrashed out by a band in rehearsal. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why I love it because it's not the sort of thing you'd ever get a, a team of songwriters coming out with, you know. But um, at the time, I thought when I mixed it, I thought, God, there's all these bits in it. It's kind of really odd. I can't, I'm not sure if I really get this just because I you know, too closely. What do I know? Uh-huh. You know, and of course, it's, um, yeah, I'm hugely proud of that as well. Yeah. Then I was lucky enough to get to do, I think, two or three albums with them a bit later on. So, uh, yeah, I had a, good, had a good time with them. I've heard that their writing process is to just like you said, jam. It's almost like freeform, stream of consciousness lyrics that may not even make sense, but he's just, yeah. they all try to get in the moment, get on the same page, jam, whatever comes out, then they form that into a song. Does that sound right? Yes, very much. Well, I'm not, obviously I haven't been involved in, in that process, yeah. but some, um, but I think that's a very good description. Yeah, and that's, a, that's it's why I always love bands for being able to do that process it's because you come up with something that's totally unique you can yeah. never get it from you know it's the antithesis of the x-factor kind of process that we've, we've got now you know yeah 
Yeah, I also remember mixing some stuff where it was a complete jam in the studio, and, mm. and Tim was like screaming, "Someone do something!" You know. <laughs> 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 so I can imagine it could be really frustrating as well, incredibly frustrating when yeah. you know people aren't on it and it's sort of nothing's happening. You know. Yeah, if you don't find the magic, you're just away. But I got a, I got a huge. I love working when you see the, that process, particularly for someone when you see the, the singer, the singer like Tim or or Roland, whoever it is, when he's working through that process in the studio it's an absolute really is a joy and a privilege to see that come together you know i did a track with roland um just going back with tears of fears called um uh tears roll down mm-hmm. which was originally a b-side yeah yeah oh you know yeah oh yeah and obviously they, re- they reworked it but i remember because originally that was just a little little riff he had going round and round and round and it was just it didn't go anywhere And then I was just, he went home one night and I just was messing around with a synth and I kind of come up with these chords for the middle bit. And um, he came in the next day and liked it and we kind of worked on it a bit, extended it. And then he literally, literally came up with the whole chorus melody and the guitar kind of counterpoint that goes um, in the studio. So I just I just saw this process and, you know, he could, you could see, you know, the first bits he came up with weren't quite right. It's a bit awkward there and he kind of, mm-hmm. I, we know it's wrong. I know it's wrong. I'm not saying anything. But he knows it's wrong as well, and you can see him just bit by bit honing it and you know, mm. and um, it becoming what it. And then he, he, at the end, you both look at each other. You go, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we got it. So um, yeah, it's that's one of the joys. I mean, I don't get to see that often, and particularly well, hardly ever now mixing. You know, yeah. um, that that process from the ground up. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, I love tears roll down. That was a um, that was a single over here, but it was a single on the Greatest Hits album. That's right. Yeah, so it got some play then. Um, okay, we got to talk about Erasure Chorus. Uh, oh, yeah. I think I saw something on Facebook that it was released 28 years ago today. Oh, my God. Really? <laughs> today? I think so, yeah. Yeah, wow. I was thinking this morning about when we were doing this uh, talk with you, and I thought, I just feel like I'm some old soldier now talking about <laughs> my war, my war days. You know, it's just, it is quite weird when um, I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, I'm hugely proud of it. Well, it's sure. great, but uh, it's just kind of odd when these things become well, not so much the razor, but you know, the, the tears of tears and that kind of stuff becomes. It almost gets a mythology of its own, and um, yeah. and I find it's a bit strange to talk about it. I mean, actually, you know what it was? Chris sent Chris you sent me a, a link to um, a version of Everybody Wants to Rule the World by Lettuce. I don't oh, know if you've ever heard that. I've heard it's of really, this, but I haven't heard the song. It's an amazing version. I mean, it's very muso, I mean, and it's not really necessarily the kind of stuff I'd normally like, but uh-huh. I've found it very moving, actually.
it was not my song, but I was involved in, a, in part of it. And it's just to hear someone take it and rework it so incredibly inventively and get a completely different emotion out of it. I yeah. just thought, well, wow, it's just, it's, it's really nice to be part of something that's, you know, people are still re- reinventing years later. Well, obviously, I know Lord to do her version, but um, yeah, it's yeah. very, very nice to be part of that. Anyway, I've digressed a bit. I can't remember. No, that's okay. We were talking about Erasure <laughs> Chorus. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So that is one of my, one of my favorite albums that I worked on. Really? Um, Why? I just think the songs are so so it's great. So it's a great yeah. production with my by Martin Phillips. And uh, again, I came. I obviously was doing quite a lot of stuff stuff for Neat at the time. In fact, I remember I was in the studio. I think mixing something by the Inspiral Carpet. Mm-hmm. I think. Um, and Daniel came down to listen to the mix, and he said, "He says, he said, what do you think of this?" And he put chorus the track on, and I said, "I think this is just fantastic." Yeah. Because um, he, he wasn't sure whether it should be the first single, and I said, "Yeah, it's just so strong." The sunlight rising over the horizon, just a distance. And then again, it's one of the situations where I think people, someone wasn't really happy with the mixes, whether it's the band or the label, I don't know, but I got um, asked to go out and do it. We went to Hamburg to do the album. Um, and obviously there were just two great guys on, and we're really lovely blokes, on the, the cusp of, you know, really everything, their peak from as far as I was concerned of songwriting. Right. Um, beautiful production. Both Erasure and Depeche Mode had a few kind of unwritten rules which had obviously varied, you know, since Vince had left Depeche and mm-hmm. um, varied over the years. But um, there were certain things like no chords so that um, there are no presets. Oh. So it made life hard, you know. Yeah. Um, so if you if you want to make a chord, you layer it out of monophonic parts, which you can certainly hear on some of the tracks. Like, I think it's Am I Right, I think, is it? Or, mm. um, I'm not sure which one is on, on, her, on that album. But you know, it makes a lot more work. But it got it. It gets some results. You know, it comes yeah. up. And they just both, both those bands get such a unique sound because of it. So not only have you got these amazing songs, but both bands have got this approach yeah. to the sound that just you know makes it so special. But I think you know Andy's songwriting, Andy's voice and his lyrics and his, his melodies are just stunning on it. And yeah, I think that both of them were so the top of their game. You know. Yeah. Um, I do know that it was, it was tough for the producer because I did, they work, it's like he's working 24 hours around the clock. I think um, Vince would work during the day and Andy would do the vocals at night. <laughs> so I think since then, they st- they don't work necessarily in the same room anymore. And oh. um, they sort of send their parts to each other. And I think that's a shame, you know. I think yeah. um, that interaction, even though, you know, they wouldn't necessarily be together all the time. But uh, just being in the same building, you know, they'd both come in and hear the mix together and stuff, you know. Yeah. 
really enjoyable. It's too bad. That's how things are these days. Pretty much everyone's remote, you know? Yeah. 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 I moved to England in 1991, right after I graduated oh, from high school. Yeah. And oh, Chorus okay. was a big hit. And uh, uh, so I was there when that album came out and uh, I was a big fan anyway, but I just remember kind of the stir that it was making at that time. It was, it's so good. Yeah. I think before we get too deep into the 90s, I think I forgot to mention an 80s album that I believe you worked on. Did you do have something to do with the Silencers Letter from St. Paul? Yeah, I did. Um, oh, I forgot completely about that. Um, yeah, that was, um, oh, that was a great album. Uh, it, was, it was something I produced, actually. Um, really? Painted Moon is yeah. one of my favorite songs of all time. I know I've been saying that a lot, but it's true. I love that song. and really great um, arranger and everything. So that was one where um, we I did go back to the heart, back to the demos quite a lot because they really had a great sound. Painted Moon, that was, I ended up programming the drums on that. I think we programmed, we did a kind of programming on the bass as well, but it's, it just never sounded quite in the pocket enough for me, you know, huh. precise enough. This is another one of my very favorite albums of all time, which is UB40's Get Guns in the Ghetto. Oh, yeah. God, I forgot about that as well. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I love that album. I know that they get kind of slagged off for being, I don't know, you know, they copy people. They do a lot of covers. It's not a lot yeah. of depth there. But this that particular album, and I don't know how involved you were, feels like the just the most perfect kind of chill out album. You know, you put it on and you're on a tropical island. That album was a bit difficult because um, they weren't around for much of it. Um, ah. And they kind of, they had a very specific way they wanted it done. Um, and I really wasn't kind of allowed to deviate much from the rough mixes, which is fine, you know. Um, but occasionally, I remember I'd try and do something a bit more dubby, thinking, man, this is, this is what they're about. They'll love this. And mm -hmm. <laughs> they just said, no, stick to what you were told to do. You know, really? so uh, it was kind of, yeah, it's kind of, I didn't really feel like I had a huge input on it on that one, but huh. um, it's a good album. I love it. You yeah. know? Um, but I think they, they, they had their vision of how, how they wanted to do it. And the, you know, the rough mixes were pretty, as they you know, often are in this case, were, were pretty spot on. So um, not a huge amount to do. I know they, actually, I do remember why they asked me to do it, which I'd just done a track with the lightning seeds called You Showed Me. It's good. Which was, yes. Do you know that track? It's I a do. cover of a turtle song. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> 
that was a mix I was really pleased with, actually. I thought it was, it was really, um, yeah, very enjoyable one to do. And that had quite a kind of cool bottom end, I think, in it. And um, it's, just, it's quite a cool little record. So I think they, I remember they mentioning that uh, as one of the reasons they asked me to do, to do it. My brother and I are both huge UB40 fans. We're also huge Level 42 fans. And we were commenting that one of the reasons we like that song so much is because it sounds a little bit like what Level 42 might have done around the same right. time. It's kind of a similar vibe there. But anyway, okay. Here's a bit of trivia for you. Yeah, please. Or not. I was watching Top of the Box again. I was, I was, uh -huh. as I said, it's, um, and they were showing, um, this was like 1979, and there was M, pop music. Well, the drummer on that clip was Phil Gould. I think it's Phil, yeah, the drummer from yeah. Level 42, yeah. And it said there's a little um, subtitle came on that said that on the original band in the studio for um, M people was two of the guys from Level 42. So um, I didn't, the only one I saw was Phil, but uh, I thought, oh, I don't recognize him. He's obviously looking pretty, very young in that. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's interesting, I thought. No way. What about uh, Human League Octopus? Oh, yeah. Um, massive Human League fan, so that was a joy to be asked to work with them. Um, that was through Ian Stanley, who you probably know was uh -huh. uh, the keyboard player in Tears of Fears. And by this time, he'd moved on to A&R. And um, I think it must have been probably at Warner's. And uh, he'd actually signed them. And um, I think they were out without a deal at the time. And obviously... He was very involved in producing them and so on. And, you know, um, so he got me in. Um, I think Spike Stent did some of it and I did some of it as far as I know. In fact, I think on one of the tracks, Ian told me they used the verses from my mix and the choruses from Spike oh, all the other way around. It's <laughs> 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 the sort of crazy yeah. stuff you get into sometimes. But um, uh, slightly odd-sounding odd record, I thought. Very, very bright. Um, and I kind of tried to want to warm it up a little bit, but... They, that was how they wanted it, I think. So, okay. um, but really great little pop songs, as yeah, as they should be with the Human League. You know, you know, it's funny. I I have had Ian Burden on here, who was a oh, member right. of Human League. Uh, you know, in the early days, and he and I were talking about this because I feel like Human League they they come out with a bang. You know, don't you want me? And all yeah. the tracks from that, and then they kind of disappear for a while. They don't they don't do anything that really catches on, and then they come back with yeah. a bang again with Human. And then they kind of go back into a fallow period. And then five years go by, and then it's tell me when. And then they kind of go back. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, it's weird. It's these, they'll get a hit one out of every like five tries instead of anything consistent. It's very hard to, um, you know, to keep re what, reinventing yourself, but also yeah. to sort of um, have that many comebacks, I guess, you know, when, you, when, there, are, when there is those gaps in between. True, um, true. Because human was kind of a different, different thing anyway, wasn't it, really? Yeah, it, was, it really um, was. Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis for the most Jim, that's part. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what happened to them? They were really great for a while. I know, I know. I've been trying to find them to see if I could get them to come on here. Yeah. Um, okay, let me see here. Uh, Nick Hayward, Monday to Sunday. Right. Just a couple of tracks, I think, on that. Oh, really? Um, okay. Yeah. But uh, I keep saying everyone's great, but he's absolutely <laughs> mad. Um yeah, it was so uh, I think I was doing what at the time I was doing a lot of uh, single remixes, you know, where because uh, during the nineties that's kind of I was really lucky that that was kind of what I was known for. So mm -hmm. you know, you either get to mix the whole album or the album would have been done, and then it's time to take a, a single off, and 
they want you know, a different angle on it or mm. more radio usually whatever that means you know mm-hmm. and uh, i was kind of for that period i was kind of the guy for that so that was what happened with nick's stuff i think it was probably just um one or two singles of it okay okay um he's another one i had on here i love him he's such a funny nice guy and um, yeah yeah i love yeah. a lot of his work um okay let me see now you've mentioned the lightning seeds i love them too you're friends with ian um yeah what uh tell me about working with them and did, did you become friends through working with them or were you friends before well as i said i met ian doing echo and the bonnie movie oh that's right in, that's right yeah uh i was gonna say 91 but it was 81 or so 82 Christ, yeah it's a long time ago and then we we did we lost touch you know but then um my manager had got in touch with him somehow i really don't know why but they were looking for someone to mix jollification mm-hmm um, I think they tried it as usual, you know, same story. It hadn't quite worked out with someone. Um, and John, my manager suggested me and I had a chat with him on the phone and we obviously didn't remember me. And I just said, look, this is, this is fantastic. And he kind of said, yeah, I want it to sound, you know, about this. I said, yeah, great. We'll just compress the shit out of it. It'll be fine. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, which is what I did. So it's beautifully recorded by Chenzo Townsend. Of course, now he's, you know, just yeah. one of the biggest, best mixers in the world. Um, and so I do remember, remember hearing that um, he'd come down. Obviously, we mixed it in London. He had come down to Liverpool. And he'd gone back up to Liverpool and mentioned to someone, he said, God, it's basketball just, just compresses everything. Just like I did at the time. And he, but he loved it. You know, it was yeah. definitely, it, it worked really well on that album. Um, uh, yeah, he's such a great songwriter. Yeah. And so that was, yeah, start of. You know, I've done quite a bit of work with him over the years now, good. and he's a good friend. Yeah, I hadn't made the connection before, but when he was hanging out back in the Echo and the Bunnymen days, was this when he was fronting Original Mirrors? Well, it's just after that. Yeah, I think he'd. Uh, he always says actually that he'd always wanted to be in the Echo and the Bunnymen, and then he realised that he couldn't. So uh-huh. the, the closest thing was producing them, really. Uh-huh. But he's always been a bit of a reluctant producer. Although you know, he's done quite a lot of it, obviously, but um, he's always wanted to do his own stuff. Um, and I did actually, I just remember I did after Echo and the Bunnymen, I did a little, he was doing a little project called Care, I think it was, that mm. never really went anywhere. And it was him and a, another guy who sang because Ian was very unconfident about his mm. voice. Uh, and I found, I literally, I found um, an old cassette tape a couple of years ago of this track we'd done up in Liverpool, um, which is, yeah, a lovely little song, you know, very, yeah. very early 80s style. Um, so we'd done a few things. I think probably about, that was about it, I think. Okay. And then, um, yeah, we, we got together. And um, yeah, we've done a few things since then. He produced an album that I love by the band The Katie Dids, or Caddy Dids. Do you remember them? I do remember. I don't think I've ever heard it. Yeah, but, it, was, um, it was really yeah. good. All right. Um, he's, a, he's a fantastic guitarist. And uh, yeah. I think he's, he's, he's very underrated because I think his songs can be seen as a bit lightweight. I think that's fair to say by some mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. and his voice isn't the strongest, you know? Um, and he was part of that Liverpool scene, which was, you know, Pete Wiley and, uh, Ian McCulloch and Julian Cope. Um, and out of those, his stuff isn't, it's kind of maybe it's dark, you know, right. the other stuff. Or, so I think he can be, um, overlooked a bit, but he did tell me that, um, when he was playing in maybe the original mirrors, I don't know who it was, or maybe the lightning seeds that Pete Townsend used to come to the gigs and stand right at the front. Really? <laughs> Pete Townsend thought he's one of the best guitarists in England, you know, no, and no, no. he's just 
and watching him, which of course is pretty unnerving. But um, that's incredible. Yeah, he's a, he's a he's a really great guitarist, you know, amongst everything else and a songwriter. Yeah. Um, good. Okay. Well, do you mind if I just throw a few more, a couple more names? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I've hit most of the big ones. There's a little. There's a few other things on here where I'm like, you did. Your name is on that, and that, so maybe there's a story there. Maybe there isn't. Right. Right. One of the things that popped up was Bon Jovi's Crush album. I did. I mixed. I did. Uh, it's my life. And you did? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> that was uh, one of those. As I say, it's a time when I was doing a lot of. I was. I was kind of one of the go-to guys, maybe especially in England. And they'd. Um, the record company wanted a, a remix for Europe because they didn't think the uh, the mix was quite right for Europe. song for the broken hearted The silent prayer for faithy parted the guy that got to do it and i remember when i walked in the assistant had the tapes on he said it sounds like the last 10 years never happened <laughs> because it had these big sort of rock drums and the kind of talk box and stuff you know and uh so basically i don't know i didn't do anything drastically different so i think like, there's a little loop going on and i kind of turned that up to make it sound a bit more 90s i guess it was mm. the 90s um anyway i think that was that was kind of supposed to be it and um you know, it's obviously a delicate political situation when the record, company, the other side of the world, takes your track and gets a remix without asking. Yeah. Yeah. But they heard it eventually and they loved it. So they, I think they use it internationally uh, okay. in America as well, I think. Um, and just to skip on a bit, actually, the same kind of the same thing happened a bit later with, uh, although a very different band, obviously Lady Antebellum, mm-hmm. where um, the UK label wanted different mixes for Europe. Uh, basically, in this case, they wanted it the mix is to sound as close as possible to the originals, but they wanted to all the fiddle and pedal steel taken out. <laughs> mm, <laughs> like, really? Sacrilege, you know. <laughs> no kidding. Outrageous, really. Yeah, so take the essence out, basically. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I shouldn't think the band ever got asked when this was going on. But anyway, I I, I um, kind of quite, I mean, it was beautifully recorded. It's an absolute treat to do. So I tried to keep you know, the integrity as much as I could. This world keeps spinning faster into a new disaster. So I run to you.
And uh, anyway, they, they've obviously eventually heard it and they, I think they liked it because they asked me to do a few more things, which oh. were you know, remixes of um, singles or whatever. Um, but that's, yeah, I got a lot of work on um, back then, you know, for those sort of things yeah. where it was, you know, someone figured it wasn't, the album version wasn't quite right or something. So. Oh, wow. It was quite weird. I knew, I knew, I knew Bob Clearman to mix that Bon Jovi. Yeah. It's quite weird when you get asked to better something that he's done. You know? No kidding. <laughs> so, now, did you actually interface with John or Richie or anybody like that? Well, I did. I think I've interviewed Richie on the, on the second one, which was, I can't remember the name of it okay. now. Okay. Um, but I got, I think, is it Desmond Charles, their songwriter? Or am I right? Um, yeah, he co-wrote It's My Life. Yeah. So, yeah, he was involved with, with the second one I did, which I can't remember the name of. And then, I kind of got Richie saying, yeah, ignore everything he said. Then the producer would say, well, ignore everything both those guys said. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, my God. This isn't fun. Oh, oh, well, <laughs> so, okay. Well, and I have no idea with that. They might have used it in the end. I don't know. But they certainly used it in my life, but I can't remember. Yeah. Track. Okay. That, that's got to be one of the biggest songs that you've worked on, too. It was. It was. And it's, it's you know, because I, I, it, it's only a one-off and it's, it was just a mix. It kind of... Yeah. I forget about it sometimes, but people say, you know, people are always saying, what, what have you worked on? And if you kind of, it's, you know, I get bored, it's such a boring, well, I know people are interested, so I shouldn't be bored, but it's, you know, where, what, which bit do I cherry pick? Uh-huh. How old are you? You know, kind of stuff. and sometimes if you just say Bon Jovi, they go, wow, you yeah. know, so that's all you need to say. You know? yeah. Classic. I mean, again, I did a Cheryl Crow, just one track. It was, it was a mix of, um, first cut is the deepest, I think. Really? So I didn't know you did it. Guess, yeah, so I mean, maybe it was just the, the Europe version again. I don't know, huh. but um, yeah, oh. so it's, it's great. I was, I got a fantastic CV, but a lot of it is just one one yeah. track here and there. You yeah, know? see, that's why you need a website to explain yeah. all of this. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe. But again, I mean, for me, I feel a bit sort of um, dishonest, sort of going and saying, "Hey, I did Bon Jovi," because uh-huh. you know it was one mix. So uh, the, just the more special stuff is the stuff we spent the time talking about obviously yeah. which was in the album like you know songs the big chair or depeche mode where i was in the studio with these guys for months yeah. and uh you know much more involved what about the verve i saw their oh yeah album. i love them yeah well that's that was great that was one track again okay um and the brief of this was to, to make this song which is like six minutes long or something on the album into a single uh-huh. which is pretty hard and um so that was like early days of digital editing it was a pretty painful process and it was really it was you know, it was. I don't know well you know the song no which one is it I don't know which one it it's is it's history it's, it's a track called history oh sure I love that song I didn't know you did it beautiful song I mean it's yeah. a kind of a bit of a precursor to um, you know um, Bittersweet and yep. um, whatever you know drugs don't work the, and like yeah, the dr- yeah, the, with the kind of strings and stuff is what I mean. But this is like um, it's kind of a stream of consciousness, verse, verse after verse after verse. With you know, so it's pretty hard to to chop it out and thinking, God, am I really desecrating the lyrics here? Am I just you know being savage yeah. um, without anybody to feedback on? So I you know, I'd had to do what I had to do, and I was quite pleased with the results. Belongs to you, but you 
Um, and they, but they really liked the mix. Um, and then they said, uh, have you got a full length version? Because they wanted to maybe use it on the album mm. or whatever. And I didn't because of the process, like the way I'd had to, to work, I had to do all these edits first before I could get the mix together. Um, I mean, sometimes you, you do the mix and then you chop it down afterwards, but this, the main gig, the main brief was to get this arrangement you know, mm-hmm. literally I had to halve the, the, the length of the songs and I didn't have a full length mix, which is a real shame because I could have used that. But but anyway, the, the single version is mine. Okay. okay. And um, yeah, I was, I was pretty pleased with that. Yeah, I love them. Did you work on the Chromio White Women album? Yeah, yeah, I did that. Yeah, I love them. Old 45s is one of my, white, our, like our family's favorite. You know, my kids love that song. We play in the <laughs> car all the time. Step to you with a corny line Asking for your name, saying what's your sign You turn around like boy, quit talking to me yeah. He could pick you up in a limousine You'd look back like what you mean Just worry about more important things Boys are not committal, always in the middle It bothers you a little, bothers you a little Why can't we be like mom and dad? I would imagine Chromio was a fan of yours because they love that 80s stuff. Is that how this happened? Yeah, they were. Yeah. I'd done a, a track, a mix for them with a, a track called Hot Mess, I think it was, mm-hmm. um, which I did in England. And um, I think it's a remix. I think it had Ellie Golding on it. Not Ellie Golding. Oh, God. What's her name? Uh, the, guy, the girl from LaRue. Oh, anyway, sure, sure, sure. Um, yes. I can't remember. So they'd name. heard this. And I think, I, I think I'd done a couple of things and they liked that. And then, so a bit later, I got the call to the mix of the album. And um, it was, what was so great about this, this is the last record that I've done that was properly old school in that we did it on a big desk, a board, um, uh, a big SSL in this place, Sphere in London, where I had a, where I had a room anyway. And um, there were no recalls. We never, did, we didn't go back and do anything again. Uh, David was there. He was just brilliant. He knew exactly what he wanted. So we spent, we, it was a day of mix. We'd start, you know, mix whatever two o'clock in the afternoon leave it up overnight come in check it fresh the next day with a few changes print it done on to the next one and that i really hadn't done for you know 20 years before mm. or whatever you know so real treat to do that and they almost you know they wanted to do it the old the old ways and all the analog equipment and stuff so um, they're very much a fan of that yeah and that was that was a real treat now, again fantastic songs i mean they did kind of a reminded me a bit of the, the not not really so much the songs, but the kind of approach and the, the sound direction of Erasure. It had that yeah. kind of warmth to it, you know, electro, a lot of electro stuff on it. Um, and, and quite poppy songs, you know. So, um, Did you do something on the last Boy George album, This Is What I Do? I did. I mixed it. Um, okay. That was the last one. I think it was. Um, yeah, that's, I think you're right. Um, <laughs> solo, I should say. Culture Club, I think, put out an album last year, but that's this right. is the last solo yeah. one. But that was really great. And that was really nice because... Um, I've done some really early stuff. I've done the first, I engineered the first two Culture Club singles, which weren't hits. These are the two before Do You Want to Hurt Me? Um, but that was, um, that was, it was, we're all the same age again, and it was really good fun. So, boy, uh, George came down, and we had a, a really nice day reminiscing about all that kind of stuff. And um, 
yeah, really, really good songs. Good. Uh, he's, you know, really just a, a real charismatic guy. Very funny, you know, very, a lot of fun to be around. Yeah, I like that album a lot. And it's, uh, it reminds me of kind of a UB40 album. It's almost reggae. There's a lot yeah. of like, you know, dubby, but also poppy so- sounds on there. It's great. He loves his dubby kind of stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was good fun. Yeah, I love that too. It's a real yeah, it's good stuff. Pleasure to work on that sort of thing, you know, with um, with his voice as well. I got one more kind of obscurity. Uh, Alpine stars. Oh my god! Yeah, White god, noise. Fantastic. Yeah, those guys oh. are great. Yeah, really great. Um, yeah. Was the track I did was called? It wasn't called White Noise. I don't think I only did one track with them, and it was. Um, oh. But it had Brian Molko from Placebo singing on it. Oh, interesting. Uh, okay. And it was so good. Uh, what's it called? Carbon yeah, something. Or other. Yeah, Carbon, Carbon Kid. Image, image, you do what you want. Carbon Kid, yeah, 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 yeah. I still play that occasionally. That's, do you really? That's produced by a guy called Andy Green, who went on to do Keen and stuff. He's a really yeah. good producer. Um, but yeah, that's a really good sounding record. Really Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Because obviously I've done quite a lot of stuff with Placebo as well over the years. Yeah, you know? there were another. I mean, I got. <laughs> I just keep going down the list. I mean, they're on my list. I got Tom Verlaine right. on here. I got Happy oh, Mondays yeah. on here. Delamitri. Uh, I Suede. Right. I'm trying to kind of not. Make you kill me with t- keeping, keeping oh, I'm so enjoying long. It, man. I'm enjoying okay, it. good. My throat holds up. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Let me ask you about one more. Did you have something to do with Burning Flame by Vi- Vitamin Z? Oh uh, yeah, I mixed the album. Um, you did. God, that's an that's an obscure one. Well, that goes back to that guy Ross Cullen I was talking about, okay. who was Chris's um, partner, really, and Ross produced it. I think Chris might have started. One of the, you know, maybe done the first single or something, and then Ross took over okay. and produced the rest of the album. And um, yeah, Ross is a really brilliant engineer and uh, a very, really funny guy. Mm. And uh, yeah, that was a cool album to work on. Okay, I don't know anything else about them, but I do like that song "Burning Flame." That's a that's a classic. Right, I do like that. A lot. I'll dig that out because I don't remember the song title. At okay, all, but, okay, uh, okay. Yeah. Well, look, I, I mean, I've I've thrown so much at you, but. In closing, I mean, can you you tell me? Are there? And I didn't even get to the most recent stuff like Charlie X E X E X and Goldfrap, and there's a million new, you know newer things. I was kind of going back to the '80s and stuff. Goldfrap, I mean, that was a real that was a real treat because um, I don't know how much you know about them, but there's basically two of them. There's mm-hmm. William Gregory and Alison Goldfrap, and William Gregory was a sax player in Tears of Fears live band, so mm-hmm. I've known him since. Both back in the day, in 85 or so, 84, he played some sax on Songs to the Big Chair. So, I didn't um, know that. Um, you know, we knew he was a great sax player, but that was, all, that was it, really. And then he yeah. went on to do this, and, you know, huge success with Goldfrap. And I was a big, big fan of those. I, I loved their stuff. So that was a treat working with him.
what are the stories that are top of mind when you look back and you're just like, I cannot believe the, the life I've had. What are some of those stories? You know? You know, I mean, I met Bowie, David Bowie briefly. Um, I was doing an album with a guy called Gavin Friday. Oh, yeah. Um, uh-huh. You know him? Yeah. Yeah. And um, we were mixing and we were working in Dublin and um, we just popped out to the pub around the corner, which is a kind of real work. It's, mm-hmm. it's a Dockers pub. You know, it's a working class area. Pretty rough pub. And we were in the saloon bar and we saw this kind of, uh, yeah, from the, through the window, the, the hatch, we saw this kind of vision in a kind of real, I always remember it as the blue suit from the um, mm. Let's Dance video. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it wasn't. But this kind of tall guy, elegant guy walking through the, bar, the other bar. Uh-huh. <laughs> it didn't fit the image, all the other guys in there. Anyway, it's David Bowie. He just come on to talk to Gavin about some stuff. And um, so he just came around and had a drink and then a, a brief chat. Yeah. That was kind of interesting. Flip sides of sort of the same question. Can you think of somebody that you wanted to work with because you really felt like you could kind of elevate what they were doing or it was a, it almost happened and it didn't ultimately happen. Is there some story like that? And then, and then also what are, um, is there an album that you worked on that you, I don't know, feel like you could have, you'd have, you wish you had a second chance at, like, I'd like to fix these oh, things. God, so many of those. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it, that's one of the interesting things about talking about stuff you did so long ago, because half the time I think, I don't know how on earth we did this, you know, yeah. but particularly with, we did this classic albums for songs for Big Joe the other day, and I'm listening to these tapes and thinking, wow, who was that guy who did all this stuff? I'm looking at my writing on the track sheets, and you know, it's just, it's like someone else, you know, it's, it's such a long time ago. It's, the process is so different. Um, it becomes like a, it becomes its own legend, you know, so it's quite strange to be, think that was always actually part of that. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a few people I love to work with. I mentioned Kate Bush. There's one, one album which I'm, um, that I'm very proud of that no one's ever heard of, which I think I'd like to mention, which is a girl called Anya Garbarek. Oh. She's Norwegian. And uh, she's the daughter of a, a very famous jazz sax player called Jan Garbarek. And um, it kind of came through a bit of a convoluted route, but she um, she's makes, she's very slow. She makes albums like once every 10 years or so. Oh. And this is one she did 10 years ago-ish. Uh, it's called Briefly Shaking. And I just think it's really, really interesting arrangements and um i was very that's one i mentioned when people asked me about mm. stuff i worked on that's one that i'm very I'm very also because it because it has been overlooked i think i just like to put it out there i think it's a really cool album okay hey james if you please the chases Nobody really that I've really desperately wanted to work. Certainly these days, no one out there that yeah. I'm really desperate to work. I mean, I think Tears Fears I was probably not just a big break, but they were the, my, one of my favourite 
ever band, you know. So to get that call was the big, the big call, you know, the big treat for me. Sure. Um, okay. You know, so that was that was the one. Certainly, we try to kind of tastefully, sensitively touch on some of the business side of this. I would assume that as a mixer or engineer on a lot of the stuff you, I mean, do you primarily make a living today off of royalties from these things or is it, do you continue to work and that you have a good lifestyle for that? Bit of both. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, the royalties obviously dry up, especially yeah. these days. Um, uh, so, but yeah, it's, it's still very welcome. Uh, and I still get, you know, I still do enough work to keep things coming in, you know, um, and again, the money's not the same as it was, but it's. I'm very. I mean, I'm turning sixty in a month's time, so I'm pretty. I'm pretty happy with life as it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good. Are you married? Do you have kids? Yeah, I got my married with three kids, okay. two of whom are at home at the moment. Uh, sort of because it's they're looking between jobs or they're looking between accommodations. Yeah. So. Okay. Well, my daughter's in Australia, and um, yeah, we, so we moved out of London about five, six years ago. And um, having a nice chilled out time in the country. Good. Very, very enjoyable. <laughs> good, good. That's great. Well, uh, look, Dave, if you can't tell, you're behind some of the music that matters most to me in my life. Oh, very and, nice uh, to say so. Absolutely. This was a gigantic honor to be able to talk to you and throw these names at you and hear your stories. It means so much. Thanks for all the work you've done in your life because... It has greatly impacted mine. Walking out tonight In the streetlights I can see you Arm in arm With just another guy There you have it, Dave Bascom. So much great music. The guy is a legend. I think he may now hold the record as the guest who's come on the show that has had his hands on the most music that means the most to me. I was trying to think who else might have held that record. Maybe Carlos Alomar, given his association with David Bowie, or Verdine White of Earth, Wind & Fire. They put out so much music, and I love all of it. Maybe that's who it was. Maybe it's a session guy like Neil Taylor or uh, Tim Pierce. But I don't think anyone, pound for pound, has touched more music that's mattered to me that we've ever had on the show than Dave Bascom. So I hope you guys enjoyed this conversation. And we wanted to close it out with that great song, Burning Flame, by Vitamin Z. I love this track back in the day. It's still good. i got to get Vitamin Z on here, don't you think? Yeah, let's see what they're doing. Anyway, next week's guest, you may have heard me mention it in here, that I had just talked to Gary Clark of Danny Wilson. Well, that's who's going to be our guest next week. A lot of things have been popping up out of nowhere. I've had to move some things around like a jigsaw puzzle. But as of now, I think we're going to go with Gary Clark from uh, Danny Wilson next week. We're going to talk about Mary's Prayer. We're going to talk about the soundtrack work he's done. It's a lot of fun, and he is so good. Huge thanks to Paul Underwood. This was a pup. A Paul Underwood production, if you couldn't tell. He always does such great work, and we are so lucky and so blessed to have him as our friend and as somebody who helps out with the podcast from time to time. Thank you, Paul, for everything you do. You guys know how to find us on Facebook by now. Please like our page. Uh, send us a message uh, on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. As I mentioned, I'm thinking of phasing out Twitter. I don't have a problem with posting episodes so that our Twitter, Twitter followers 
know about them and hopefully they go a little viral and people start sharing and all that kind of stuff. I myself just, my quality of life improves if I, don't, if I spend less time on Twitter, I found. And if you're new to the podcast, you've just found us through Dave or somebody else recently, go into the archives and see if there are other people whose names matter to you. A lot of the people we talked about in this episode have been on the show. So go in there, find something you like, stick with us, uh, subscribe. Next week, we're going to have Gary Clark, and we just keep going from there. We love you all. We will talk to you later. Go passing by